Heavenly Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we thank you this morning as we arose into cold temperatures. Uh, we're reminded of your goodness to us that every uh, morning you faithfully uh, rise the sun as we uh, go from darkness to light. Uh, the warmth of the sun warms our faces and it reminds us of uh, you who bring light into a world of darkness. Uh, and we thank you this morning that we can gather, that we can uh, have the opportunity to gather with families over the past multiple days and give thanks, not just thanks in general or generally grateful hearts, but uh, to give thanks to you, the creator and sustainer of all that is. And as Christians, we can look to you and uh, be grateful for the redemption that is ours in Christ and every good and perfect gift that comes from your hand. Uh, and I pray that you would be with us this morning as we look to Romans chapter 6, understand this concept of the mortification of sin and how we can first understand it in light of eternity, and then how to apply the truth of your word to our lives as we live in light of the gospel. And I pray that you would bless us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, uh, we're in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 6. Um, you guys have had uh, a whole bunch of teachers uh, ping-ponging ping around as we've taught this class. I hope that's been a, a blessing to you. It's certainly a blessing to us to be able to look at uh, these, these verses of Scripture um, and to deal with each one in uh, the way Kyle set this up in, two, in a kind of a half a chapter a week. We're able to really think about what God's teaching us uh, and uh, really dive in deeply. So I hope, hope it's been a blessing to you. We're, we're in the first half of Romans chapter 6 today. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of review, um, at least where I've been in this class, because I know you guys have been here the whole time, but I taught the first week and then a few weeks later, and this Romans tent builds off of itself, um, and it's important to remember where we were, where we were to uh, understand where Paul is taking us as we, as we go into this Romans chapter 6. So um, the verse I pulled out, and really what we're going to be focusing on this morning, is what it means to be united in Christ, the union with Christ, what that means, <clears throat> and what that means in light of how we live. Um, so the verse I, I pulled out for us to, to really focus on is Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if, we, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're going to unpack this morning uh, this concept of being united uh, in Christ, union with Christ, and what that means. Um, so hang on to that for a minute. First, we're going to set the stage. So where are we? We're in Romans chapter 6, November 26th. Um, if you think about where you've been, you've had a great ride so far this fall driving through Romans. Um, and we've got a few more weeks. We're going we're gonna to bring to conclusion the fall uh, semester on December the 17th. I heard that some of you uh, were told yesterday that we wouldn't have Sunday school class today, but 
Uh, we are, so thank you for being here. Um, we're going to end up December 17th uh, with the conclusion of Romans chapter 7. So Romans chapter 7 follows Romans chapter 6. Uh, we talk about the mortification of sin and the not yet reality of the struggle that we deal with in terms of the presence of sin, but not reigning sin in our lives. And that's Romans chapter 7. Um, and then we'll take two weeks break and then continue um, in uh, the new year. Um, so remember where we were. This is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And it's been really interesting and, and fun, to be honest, to be able to take these lessons uh, to the cadets at Orma. Um, we kind of set it up so that if you teach a class, then the very next week you go to, to Oak Ridge Military Academy and do a really simple 15-minute presentation of the gospel to the cadets as we preach the sermon on a much longer Sunday school lesson and follow those passages. Now, it didn't exactly work out um, completely uh, that way, but it's been a real blessing to be digging deep with you guys and then taking kind of the punchline back to the cadets um, uh, at Orma. So um, I spoke to them quite a bit about the context of Paul's letter to the church in Rome being a lot like um, the United States, uh, our current culture. Um, and there was two types of people being addressed uh, by Paul initially in the, with the, with, at the church in Rome. Those people, uh, the Gentiles that, that, that Paul addressed in Romans chapter 1, that had no idea, had never been in the church, knew nothing of the things of God, didn't know how they were supposed to live, and they, uh, they just pursued darkness. And then the other, the next, very next chapter... Uh, he was speaking to the Jews, the people that had been in the church who knew what they were supposed to do, but approached it in a self-righteous way. And then the third, third chapter is bringing those two people together and saying, guys, everybody falls short of the glory of God, needs uh, a redeemer. Um, and that builds in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. And then in Romans chapter 4, we start seeing the picture of the answer to this problem, of how Christ plays into uh, the answer to the problem of sin in our lives. Um, and, it, and then Paul connects for the Jews and the Gentiles, but now speaking to the Jews, he kind of pings Paul's back and forth between speaking to the different people at the church in Rome, speak, connecting Abraham um, to, to this uh, history and this truth, uh, and then connecting all the way back to the Old Testament truth of uh, the first Adam, all the way back to first Adam, and then Christ being the second Adam in Romans chapter 5. I mean, so we get to a place where now we're in, everybody understands that there's, there's a pursuit of darkness, uh, self-righteousness is also bad, everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, and now, and Christ is the answer. And so then he asks a rhetorical question to begin uh, Romans chapter 6, um, and we'll get there. But first, remember the progression Everything that's bad in the world, everything that's, that's uh, kind of modern, current culture, everything that's, that, that we see around us starts from a suppression of truth. And the progression is uh, those who aren't present, uh, aren't present in the church have nothing of the, no knowledge of the things of God. Uh, they simply suppress the truth about God, and then hearts are darkened. Suppression of truth leads to darkened hearts, and the exchange of the truth about God for a lie... And instead of worshiping the creator, worship the creature. Um, this is the progression in Romans chapter 1. And then from that, we lead to dishonorable, all kinds of bad behavior, dishonorable activities and just ultimate pursuit of darkness. Um, and God gives them up to a debased mind. Their minds are, are separated from God. They suppress the truth. And the pursuit of darkness dominates 
the culture. And you have a culture that gives, that not only does things that are uh, offensive to God, that are sinful, but then gives approval, the scriptures say, to those who practice such things. So what's wrong is right. Uh, I remember Pastor Stewart used to say, the things that get really scary are when, if you're in a, ever in a situation where the darkness starts to look like light, you're on very shaky territory. Be very, um, be very sober-minded when the darkness starts to look light. And that's what happens in the world. Um, the pursuit of darkness, suppression of truth. If you suppress the truth, uh, the definition of light goes away, and now the darkness looks like light. Uh, and then you're flipped upside down, and you don't know which way's up, um, and you're in a bad place. And that's the culture in the church in Rome. Um, and then we shift to chapter 2. Uh, and I, this quote from Matthew Henry from Romans chapter 2 in his commentary says, In the former chapter, chapter 1, the apostle had represented the state of the Gentile world to be as bad and black as the Jews were ready enough to pronounce it. As many of us probably are when we read Romans chapter 1. We, we're in the church. We know that these, these things are wrong and, are, and against God. But um, we can get to a place where we take a haughty position or... Uh, we think we would never be in that kind of a, of a pursuit of darkness. Um, and now, in Romans chapter 2, designing to show that the state of the Jews was very bad too, and their sin in many respects more aggravated, to prepare his way, he sets himself in this part of the chapter to show that God would proceed upon equal terms of justice with Jews and Gentiles, and not with such a partial hand as the Jews were apt to think he would use in their favor. We're the Jews. We've been in the church. We know uh, the things of the Lord. Therefore, we have special favor with God. No, because there, if you remember what we, what we talked about in Romans chapter 2, uh, the sin of the Jews in Romans chapter 2 was thinking about the answer was what they did and not what Jesus had done, which is equally bad as suppressing truth and pursuing darkness. Different places, but the same sinful heart. So, God's covenant Breezing over this quickly, God's covenant, the, the, the distance between the creature and the creator was so great that God had to voluntarily enter into covenant. And that covenant was in the garden, the covenant of works, where perfect obedience was required. Eternal life was promised. Now, we all know what happened. It didn't work out. Man, by, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, this is Confession of Faith, chapter 7, God entered into a new covenant, the covenant of grace, where Christ kept the covenant of works on our behalf. And this whole notion of the covenant of works being, being kept by another, Christ, is the answer to how we Christians become right with Christ. Only one human being has ever kept the covenant of works. That person was Jesus. His work was the Second, or new Adam fulfilled all the terms of our original covenant with God. His merit in achieving this is available to all who put their trust in him. Jesus was the first person, and by his righteousness, we get into heaven when we die by good works. It's Christ's good works on our behalf. So, now, all that to say, we're in Romans chapter 6. So, with all that background, uh, Roman, and really Romans chapter 1 through 5 is really that story. Um, and so then... Where do we go from there? And Paul asks this question at the beginning of Romans chapter 6 um, for the point of dramatic um, example uh, and answer. And I want to set the stage as we dive into this um, with a theme of, as I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, with a theme of being united 
to Christ, union with Christ. The answer to this problem, how this all makes sense, is, is because of the believers, the elect, the invisible church, the corporate invisible church being united to Christ. Christ indwelling in individual believers, the elect, the invisible church. Now let's think about this. Let's read it. Here's God's word, Romans chapter 6. Um, you can open up your Bibles. I'm going to be going to a few scripture references that won't be up here. Um, so have your Bible ready, but most things you'll see on the screen. Okay, so first about five verses. What shall we say then in light of everything we talked about? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Paul, this is important because in, this, this is a, a shift in thinking. So we just went from we just went from really fairly straightforward, you know, suppress the truth, that's bad, um, sin is bad, Jesus is good, um, Jesus sinned, or Jesus didn't sin, therefore our sin, God sees Jesus instead of us. This is basic Sunday school stuff, right? We just, Paul just blew our minds here, if you think about it. He's not saying by no means because it's the right thing to do to obey the Ten Commandments, do the right thing. He immediately goes to union with Christ. Now, this is different. So this is, this is not just we need to do good. This is where we died with Christ and are united with Christ in his resurrection. Now, this is not an easy concept to understand, but it is, it is pervasive here and all throughout Scripture when Paul and even Jesus himself is talking about how this all works. And this is very important to understand. So United with Christ. John Owen, um, which, we'll talk, which we'll talk about a little bit at the, at the end, um, volume six of his complete works, um, John Owen speaks about the mortification of sin, which happens to be the title of our, of our first, uh, the theme of the, of the verses here that we're talking about. Um, and he gives us, so in, the, in, the, in, those, in those works, he gives us nine kind of practical rules uh, to mortify sin. Um, We'll get there at the end when we figure out how to take something home that we can do something with. Um, but at the beginning here, he says, uh, from, not from the mortification of sin, but from his exposition on the epistle to the Hebrews, he says, our union with Christ is the principle and measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations. Now, this is a doctrine that, you know, oftentimes we overlook uh, in the church. We say things like, Christ died for our sins, therefore we're right with God. That's all true. But the reason is because our union with Christ. And that's not so easy to understand. But the teaching is all throughout Scripture and even in the writings of our confessions and catechisms. So we're going we're gonna to sample this a little bit. John Owen says, it's the principal measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations. And notice he uses the word enjoyments. Union with Christ brings joy. 
Keeping the law of God is not, and what does the psalmist say? Sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. That's not, that's not uh, overbearing or uh, sad or rule following. It's not legalistic, right? We can easily label, we think about keeping the law and we use words like legalistic and we don't want to be legalistic. So by all means, let sin abound so that, so that grace will abound that much more. Paul says, by no means. Christ, the union with Christ is spiritual enjoyment. Now, let's look. Um, where does this union come from? So I'm going to give us a little overview, and there's much more that can be said on this, um, but I'm going to give us a little overview of some historical uh, context for being united with Christ, Christ's union with the elect. Um, so pulling from Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 30, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer is the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Does that make sense? Not quite yet, I don't think, but the, the, the theme is, 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 fairly, uh, is fairly consistent. Um, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ, and we know that we become a Christian and God gives us the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit serves as uh, our conscience. And Philippians 2 says that God works in us both to not only to do, but to want to do the things that pleases Him. Um, by working our faith out, working our faith in us, fortifying our faith. Uh, the sacraments play a role in this as well as, as we are spiritually fed. Um, but the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. Again, united to Christ. Um, what about God's eternal decree? Um, Westminster Confession of Faith 3.5. Um, this all happened. This is when your mind starts to really get blown, or at least it does for me. Um, this all happened before the foundation of the world. Uh, but then in our uh, understanding, things happen in time as well. Uh, there's an eternal aspect of our union with Christ that also has particular application in particular believers' lives at particular times um, in our understanding. But from God's perspective, it's before the foundation of the world. So what does it say here in 3.5 in terms of the, the eternal decree? Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the, of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his free grace and love alone, without any foresight of faith or good works. Remember, before the foundation of the world, before we were even conceived of, our perseverance in either of them or anything in the creature as conditions. So we did nothing out of the mere good pleasure uh, for his own glory or any other causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. So before the foundation of the world, God chose the invisible church in Christ. In Christ. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. This progression, starting in verse 3, if you notice this uh, underlined here, every in him, in Christ, in union, uh, those kind of words. Um, this connects 
that eternal decree to things that happen in, in, in certain times and seasons. Um, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what God was doing and has done before the foundation of the world, uniting believers to Christ, happens in our perspective at this point where we realize what God has done. Uh, the Holy Spirit it comes present in our lives and we start to change, our affections start to change. And we start to want to pursue light instead of darkness. This happens because of this, before the foundation of the world, union with Christ. Christ indwelling in us. That's how things happen downstream. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, um, talking about Christ. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and men. And we understand that. That was Romans chapter 3 or 4 and 5. Um, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So these things happen to people like you and me in, at certain times. There is a chronology to it. There's a time when you pursued darkness or a time maybe when you didn't understand some people have a testimony that they never knew a day within it when they weren't a christian and that's wonderful some are running the way of romans chapter one as hard as they can and god changes dramatically sometimes uh, our affections both uh, are the way god works in time to connect our understanding with that union with christ that happened before the foundation of the world union with christ couple other commentaries on this, this idea. Um, again, Paul is blowing our minds here in Romans chapter 6, uh, and it's important to blow your mind because it's more, there's, it's more if, you just, if you approach, hey, Jesus saved me from my sins, so I'm going to just keep on sinning because Jesus is better than, Jesus is all good, right? You can't out, how many times have you heard in, in church, you can't out-sin Jesus' grace, or you can't out-sin Jesus, right? It's true, Absolutely true. 
But if that's where your mind is, you're way, you're, you're just way underthinking this. Uh, your, your mind is down here. Remember Neil used to talk about the cockroach who's dying and, and lying on his back. And, his, and if you're always thinking about me, myself, and I.com, which Neil used to always say, he used to connect me, myself, and I with a website. There was a joke about that. It's funny how your mind works. I always joke with him about that. Um, it wasn't necessarily always a website, but any sort, sort of self Self-focus became a website. So anyway, aside. <laughs> but the cockroach lies on his back, right? And the legs turn in and he kind of turns like that and dies. It's a great visual uh, to think about. If we're, 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 hey, I can do whatever I want. I can say, you're, you're way, you're missing the point. It's union with Christ. And from that union, being united to Christ, our, our, the, 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 the whole self-focus should be, the top should be blown off that. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. By no means. What are you doing? You're thinking so small. Think big. Think big. Um, this is an editorial from Ligonier. Got some great stuff. Sometimes they put authors, sometimes they don't. I thought this was a great quote. Because believers are united with Christ in the eternal election, their sins could be imputed to him in the redemptive historical union. So imputed, remember, means like inputted, right? So um, Christ could actually take our sins because of this union, this union with the, with, the, with the believer. In this way, Christ truly atoned for the sins of God's people as their sins were placed on him. In turn, the righteousness of Christ clothes believers because he perfectly represented those with whom he was united eternally. By this vital spiritual union, God brings the elect from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is the existential aspect of union with Christ. Before this act, believers remain outside Christ and are dead in sins and trespasses like the rest of fallen humanity. This whole, this whole idea, Christ, Jesus died for our sins, God sees Christ instead of me, only works because of the union with Christ. John Calvin said in his Institutes, Understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. This union with Christ makes it possible for Christ to own our sin and for us to experience his righteousness. Back to Rome, the first five verses I read, where does Paul go when he explains this? He immediately goes, we died with Christ in his crucifixion and rose with Christ in his resurrection. Now, picking up in verse six, so we're back to Romans now, first five verses, now back to verse, verse six. We know, this is right, this is uh, right from Romans chapter six, verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus." So now this concept of old self and new self starts to be brought in. And death to sin 
and life to righteousness. Now we know, we know because, because, um, because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts and changing our affections, we remember back to the fall of the state of man um, changed, right, from possible to sin, uh, Christ was impossible to sin, and then we become possible not to sin at this point where we have the Holy Spirit, Christ indwelling in us. It's, for, it's Christ, it's the Lord who works in us, both to will and to do things that are for his good pleasure. So we know we're going to go right here in, next, in a couple of weeks, uh, next week, into, no, the week after next, into Romans chapter 7. And we understand Paul then laments the fact that, hey, Christ is in union with me. I have now the ability to make some decisions to do things that are, that are good, but it's not perfect in this life. I now know what is right, uh, but my members do other things. That's that whole conflict in Romans chapter 7 between uh, the struggle and sometimes depressive struggle of the believer. It's kind of great to live in bliss knowing that, hey, I, I just dark, I'm just reveling in darkness. The darkness looks light, and I don't have any problem at all. Um, and then you become uh, convicted of your sin, realize the righteousness of God compared to the way you're living, realize what darkness and light is, uh, and then you know what the right thing to do is. And sometimes you can do the right thing and choose to do the right thing. And it is a choice. Don't be confused. And this is what, this is what Paul is saying here. Don't be confused that we sit here passively and say, okay, God, I'm ready for you to work on me and, and help me be more like you. Uh, I'll wait for my affections to be so overpowering that I just passively become uh, a follower and pursue light inherently. You make real decisions. Um, and Paul's telling you, make real decisions. And you have to, you have to make real decisions in, before the face of God now. Uh, and you do that with the conscious understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Right? And Romans chapter 7, we'll get there, is helping us to relate to what that struggle looks like. And it's never perfect in this life. The Romans chapter 7, the, the, the Romans chapter 7, Paul, uh, his life is our life from now until, until glory. That's going to be the reality. There's, you're not, it's never, sanctification is never perfect in this life. But it's the same, but it's, it's that way for everybody. It's that way for the entire church. You're not on your own. Um, and Paul explains that so clearly and vividly in Romans chapter 7. But where we are now is, is knowing that we have the power because of Christ in us to die to the old self. Now, that's Romans chapter 6, 6 through 11. Um, Burke Parsons wrote something about this. I, I, I pulled some of this information, and some of it just needs to just be quoted. So here's a quote. It's rather long, but, but listen here to me. Uh, I think you'll find it useful. Uh, the believer's union with Christ has long been a neglected doctrine in many churches, yet it is a central doctrine in Scripture. God's Word teaches us that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that we are united to Christ by God's justifying grace alone, through our faith alone, because of the atoning death of Christ alone. Yes and amen. The nature of this union is not only that we are in Christ, but that He is in us. The theological implications of our union with Christ are astounding. And it is Christ Jesus Himself who taught us what they are. In John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
At the root of our sanctification is our union with Christ. As branches, we bear fruit precisely because we are united to Christ the vine, and we are connected to the vine because of the work of God the Father, who is the vine dresser. Galatians chapter 2 um, connects this point further. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, where do we go with that? Well, we're only doing the first half of Romans chapter 6, but the first half of Romans chapter 6 is, in light of all this, mortify sin. So where does he end up in in, in verse 12? Um, He therefore goes to um, let not sin, and this is um, straight from the, from, the, from the scriptures, Romans chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. So we're united with Christ. Christ is living in us, and we now have the power, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and our union with Christ, to make decisions that please God. Without that, we remain dead in our sins and trespasses. And so with that power of Christ indwelling in us, Paul says, do something about it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. You're taking Christ indwelling in you into every place you go, every thought you have, every action you take, every word you speak to your wife or your children or those that you work with, everything that you see with your eyes. Christ is present, and it's real decisions that you can make to mortify sin, to slay it. Um, And that, the punchline of John Owen's works on this topic, are in light of passages like this, in light of Romans chapter 6, in light of uh, the teaching, really Christ's teaching throughout the Gospels, and uh, Paul's teaching in numerous places in in his epistles, uh, are to take action to, what does he say? Kill sin before sin kills you, right? Put sin to death before sin puts you to death. Um, <clears throat> a couple points, a couple points to think about. Um, I'm going to pull up, um, I, didn't, I don't have these in here, but I'm, I'm going to pull up, there's a nice summary. Um, you can go get John Owen's complete works. It's like 15 or 20 books. And you can go to chapter six and read old language, which is great, um, but it's harder to understand. Or you can go to Amazon and, and Google um, Mortification of Sin, John Owen, and you can pull up um, a little short book um, called The Mortification of Sin. Um, and uh, it's a nice little practical application, and there's nine little points. Um, in, his, in chapter six of his complete works, he's got like 11 rules, so somehow it got condensed to nine. But I'm going to share with you the nine here in a second um, for application. But um, two principles, this is, this is for free, this is for me, um, take it for what it's worth. 
Principle number one, applying union with Christ. Principle number one, name specific sins and put them to death. Turn over to Colossians chapter three uh, real quick. I don't have this up, so you're going to have to turn to it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, he doesn't say put to death this general notion of sin. He starts to talk about specific things to put to death. Part of owning uh, and part of mortifying sin. And if Christ isn't dwelling in you, guess what? You don't have any, there's no pretending. Like when somebody comes over for dinner, right? Let's say the pastor comes over for dinner. You can clean up the kids. You can put all the bad movies in the closet, whatever it is. You can, you can, um, you know, don't say a cuss word, little Johnny. Just the pastor's here. You can hide, right? But Christ and there's no hiding. They're pretending Jesus knows us all the way down to the bottom. Um, and so if you want to mortify sin, you need to stop pretending. You need to own it. Name things specifically. And that's what Paul does here uh, in Colossians chapter 3. Oops, I just lost it. Um, Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Name them. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Put them away. Put what away? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Pick it, name it specifically, and kill it. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another. We're united to Christ, therefore Christ is with us specifically. As I said, there's no pretending or hiding from specific sins. Name them, acknowledge them, and don't. And it's not a legalistic activity to think about the fact that you just did something that was wrong. Put it to death. And it's not because, here's the, here's the switch, right? Here's the switch. It's not because any decision that you make to stop doing something that's pursuing darkness, pick it. That has nothing to do with your standing before God. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Zero. But you're making that choice because you love Christ more than darkness. Take your mind out of the self-focus of what do I need to do to get into heaven 
And look what Christ has done. How can I please him? How can I live better because Christ is indwelling in me? Christ is in your house. Christ is indwelling in you. And you're taking him to the muck. You're taking him to the mud every day. Don't do it. It's, it's, if for any other reason, it's not polite. <laughs> if somebody comes over to your house, treat them well. And here's the doctrine that's the doctrine of stop it. I had a friend who, who's, you know, he said, how do you, this like self-help thing, how do I, how do I um, be a better uh, manager of my time? Stop wasting time. <laughs> Seems simple. But how do I move beyond this bad behavior? Stop it. Stop it. Name it and stop it. Put it to death. Not because salvation depends on your righteous choice to put off the old self, but because you get to. Get to church. That's what we mean. You get to put on the new self. Not everybody gets to. This is the key point. Not everybody gets to put on the new self. Christ is not in the heart of every person in the world. He's in the heart. He indwells in the believer. What can we do other than to name our insults to Christ and stop it? That's what John Owen is saying. Stop it. That's what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3. And we don't have to wait for God to more change our affections. Christ indwelling in us gives us the power. And it's a struggle, Romans chapter 7. And each of us struggles in different ways, and I'm not saying it's easy. But we have the power to say no specifically. And it's easy to just, and, and it's not a hard thing to pick one. You don't have to wipe everything out. Pick one and say no. That's victory. Scott. Oh, thanks, Dave. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. This passage in Colossians is a great illustration of active repentance. That we're putting off something specific and we're replacing it with a godly character uh, that is specific. Mm. It's just a beautiful picture. Absolutely. It's never, it's never putting off. It's always putting off and putting on. When it comes at that place in your life when you know that you have sinned, I struggle sometimes with legalism, with, well, I've got to stop it. And I'm trying to understand, is it, is it me that is discerning its sin, or is it God convicting me of that sin and giving me the understanding that it's, it's all about him and destroying that sin, not me? It, do you see the difference? I mean, it's easy to get off on uh-huh. me doing it and not God. It's never, it, you're right. That's why... Paul asked the rhetorical question in Roman, at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, where we started. Um, it's never legalistic to stop doing something that's offensive to God. That's not legalistic. But assigning your own self-righteousness or your salvation or um, your position compared to those around you at a higher level because you made a decision to stop something, that's where you get to the Romans chapter 2 sin of the Jews. You're better because you made something stop. It's real easy to, to know you're not that good. Just, just think about all of that. You know, if, you, if, you, if you say, I'm going to not do this, not even today. I'm not going to do this right now, this, this moment. Well, wait a few minutes and you'll do something else, right? So 
it's not, it's, if you're honest with yourself and you don't pretend, name specific sins, it's, it's not hard to realize that you're not that much better than anybody else. In fact, you're not any better than anybody else. Anybody else? Yeah, that's the key to not, to, to, that's the key to not taking that mindset to a legalistic place. The other question I had was, you mentioned earlier, uh, where does joy come by? And the scripture, or the, the Westminster Catechism 30 talks about it's the spirit that applies. And I've often heard in churches where we're told to apply what we've just read. And I heard somewhere that there is no word for apply in the Bible. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, Good but, question. But often I get the sense that it's me that's having to apply. And I don't necessarily hear it's the spirit who is applying that desire in me to do that and gives me the power to do it. God promises. God promises to convict us through the means uh, that we exercise readily and often in the church through the preaching of the word, the administration, administration of the sacraments. And every Lord's Day, when the session goes over in the little closet, we pray for the Holy Spirit to convict sinners in our midst and to draw close to believers. I wasn't referring to our church. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah no problem, no problem. I, I understand. Um, let, me, let me, another question here. Let me, let me bring you something else to think about. Um, these quick nine points, uh, mortification of, of sin, um, in terms of practical ways to go about this. <clears throat> Number one, diagnose sin's severity. Don't fall into the uh, trick that, and this is not on the screen, sorry. I'm reading it to you. We'll go to principle number two in a second. Diagnose sin severity. Um, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta recognize. You gotta, can't fall into the trap of saying, "eh, it's not that bad," right? Diagnose sin severity. Number two, grasp sin's serious consequences. The Colossians chapter three: the wrath of God is coming for all these things: malice, anger, uh, covetousness. Uh, that progression in Romans chapter one. Remember, he goes from all this sexual immorality. Um, homosexuality, things that many of us say, well, I don't do that, I don't do that, I'm pretty good. And then right after that, he says, disobedient to parents, disobedient to authority, impatience, anger, malice. Um, all these things are serious and deserve God's wrath. Number three, be convinced of your guilt. Owen writes, lay thy corruption to it. Pray that thou mayest be affected with it. Pray for conviction. And number four, Earnestly desire deliverance. Knowing your great guilt, you can long for deliverance from sin. Why is this important? Because longing, breathing, and panting after deliverance is a grace in itself that hath a mighty power to conform the soul into the likeness of the thing longed after. Long for righteousness. Number five, consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temperament. So now it gets practical. Um, how are you more naturally tempted to sin? And what are the signs that you're about to go someplace dark? And number six, avoid occasions that incite this sin. Know yourself. Don't pretend. If you have a, if you have, um, a, a sin of you know, lust or things on the internet that you shouldn't look at, don't go. Don't go to those places. Don't uh, uh, approach occasions that incite sin. Number seven, address sin's first signs. And know what the signs are, address them 
at the beginning. Number eight, this is, a, this is the best part, meditate on God's glory. Don't think so much about what you have to do in your little, in your little, your little space. It's me, 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 me. Think about God's glory and that Christ is indwelling in you, which means he's not just beside you, which is easy to understand, but in you. You start thinking about that, it becomes a lot easier to say, eh, I'm not going to do that. Um, Christ is here with me. i got more important things to think about. Meditate on God's glory. Number nine, don't rush to comfort yourself. Don't declare victory. Let um, Jeremiah 6, 14, 2 Corinthians 13, 15, um, let the Holy Spirit, let God be your only comforter. Um, nine points. Mortification of sin. John Owen, go grab it, a little helpful manual. But don't read the, John Owen to understand why. Read, you have to leave the scriptures to understand that we're united with Christ and therefore we have the power to say no to sin. Now, finally, <clears throat> some comfort. Principle number two. It's not all about you. 1 Corinthians 12 says the Holy Spirit unites, and it's so easy, as I've said, you know, the cockroach turning in. It's so easy to think about these kind of things uh, from our own perspective. It's so easy to think about just me, how I am going to react. What, what do I have to do? God doesn't indwell, Christ doesn't indwell in just one person. He indwells in the elect, the entire invisible church. First Corinthians 12 reminds us of that, that we're all members of one body and Christ is the head. That has two application points. One, you're not alone. And Christ is doing this work in a body of believers and he, and he, and he gives us Things, visible, practical things like a gathering like this of the church. It's why we say model the grace of God to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look to your left and look to your right and knowing that the same thing that's going on in your heart is going on in the hearts of the people all around you. Um, relate to that. Um, and then next, how many of you love your neighbors? All the time fully. Sinclair Ferguson uh, had a little talk um, called Union with Christ, Life-Transforming Implications, and he, he, he kind of he dwelled on this point that we're so easy to be judgmental, we're so easy to, to point our finger at other people, to be disgusted or be critical uh, of other people, especially other believers. Believers are more harsh on sometimes those in the church than those outside the church. Um, he says, remember... As we love our neighbors in Christ, remember that if Christ is not ashamed to indwell in them, should I not be slow to embrace them? It's not all about you. Love your neighbor as Christ loved the church because Christ was not ashamed, ashamed. Christ was not ashamed to indwell. Therefore, this person's probably worth your time too. Maybe. Questions, thoughts, comments. Uh, somebody raised their hand and I cut them off a, a minute ago. Forgot what you were going to say, probably.
Greg? Yeah, one of my favorite parts of the scripture in Romans we're studying, when I was listening to Martin Lloyd, I, I, I was listening to his sermons on Romans. It really stuck in my head, his emphasis on that, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. And in the King James, it's reckon. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like a lot of the battle we're talking about today with the Christian and sin is... Uh, mental like what what are you considering in your mind about yourself about god you know and then just that talk about the laws nothing wrong with the law it's what's wrong is how we think about it in our head like are we thinking about sin and doing good in terms of how good am i and what, what am is it leading us to pride or is it leading us to be thankful and glorifying to God that he's working in this, you know? So that's just what I get from it is just the mental war. God wants the heart. Another way to say mental is the heart. God wants the heart. God wants the heart. Um, There's nothing, as I said, there's nothing legalistic about loving Christ more than darkness. That's joy. And that's what the, that's when, that's when obedience to God's law becomes a privilege and not a requirement or an overbearing task. When legalism goes to privilege, ding, 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 that's the heart. This one reflection, which you mentioned earlier about the knowing yourself and knowing your triggers, the things that you, key things that you're drawn to, I guess I'll put it that way, is I've found that when you know, we talk a lot about anxiety in this current age. And I think sometimes anxiety is driven by some of the things that you want so badly. And when you start to um, I don't know, figure out, oh, no, I'm having an anxious moment or I'm having these situations or I'm having these thoughts, when you calm yourself and you are looking back to God, he changes that. And it's it's a physical knowledge of your person and your in your body, but also your heart, I think, too. And I know that the times that I've had victories over things that I struggle with are the times that I'm most aware of, one, where I am and who I am and and the things that I'm weak in, but also that he is strong, that I can make that choice to say, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Just just tell him, stop it. And this is something I talk to my, my sons about. Well, I don't know, Dad, I'm struggling with this thing. I said, just stop it. Well, what do you mean? Just don't do this and do that. Don't make it hard. Yeah. And I think we make it hard. And so then our anxiety or, or, or our complexity grows in our own imagination more than anything. But we just come back to this. And it's not about me. God's giving you that just to do that next small piece of obedience. Yeah. Don't make stop it. Don't make don't make stop it a, a, a unapproachable um, task. Stop something small, and it'll build. And you know Romans chapter seven, like I said, it's coming, and it's not easy. Uh, and your whole life will be a struggle between stopping little things and trying to stop and and start bigger things. Um, and that's the life of uh, the inner conflict of. Uh, sin 
uh, that's not that's defeated, uh, but where there's still a remnant, and that's in our um, this side of glory. That's in each of our hearts. Well, let me close in prayer. I've got to go talk to the to a Sunday school class about worship, um, and I'm due there now. So let me close in prayer, and you guys can reflect further. Heavenly Father, help us, help each of these brothers and sisters in Christ love you more than darkness. Help each of us to love you more. Help us to, uh, to blow our minds to think not about what we can do and what we can't do, but what Christ has done and what we can even conceive of in light of that truth. Help us to be in awe of your glory. And little by little, through the power that you have given each of us in dwelling in our hearts, in dwelling in us, um, the strength to slay sins one by one and become more and more like you, to be more and more conformed to your will. Be with each of these brothers and sisters and their families. Uh, Be with us as we uh, go into worship. Fill us up with praise and awe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.